Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got Nurse Sam again for a second episode. (laughs) Jumping in for guest hosting duties in the most amazing way. Thank you so much for for joining us, Sam. How are you doing today? I'm great. This is, it's always fun to, to record with you and to, to talk about this stuff. It's interesting. Yes. Sam has stepped in for guest hosting duties on a medical podcast I have called Hypochondriac's Almanac and a number of other little things that she's been a friend of mine for, gosh, how long has it been now? 10 years? Yeah. Oh, it'll be 11 this year, probably. Yeah. So nuts. I used to go over to Sam's house. We both lived in San Diego. Neither one of us lives there anymore. But we both lived in San Diego. She would cook dinner and we'd have champagne and talk talk all kinds of smack and just have an amazing time. We cooked a lot. Or I, I cooked a lot. It was fun. It was fun to, to have good old time. And Sam makes the most amazing cupcakes. Just have to share <laughs> that one little detail. They were so good. I remember she made me these Snickers cupcakes and I kept, she gave me four of them and I kept them like on my pillow next to me. It's just, they were so good. Lucky dog didn't eat them actually. Those cupcakes were so amazing. I ate them all, but like I savored them. I had to like ration myself because it would be so tempting to eat four of them at once because they were just that good. Oh, thank you. Okay. Let's jump into today's cases. Got some interesting stuff to talk about you with you today. Um, okay, <laughs> let's start with this one because this is pretty freaking interesting. Woman 29 arrested after enrolling at New Jersey High School posing as a student, officials say. And I found this one interesting for a couple of different reasons. I'll kind of get into that after I read this article. But a 29-year-old woman was arrested last week after she spent four days fraudulently enrolled in a New Jersey high school as a student, school district officials say. The woman, who New Brunswick's police identified as Hei Yong Shin of New Brunswick, was charged with one count of providing a false government document with the intent to verify one's identity or age. Police say she showed a false birth certificate with the intent to enroll as a juvenile high school student. New Brunswick Police School District Superintendent Aubrey Johnson said last week at a Board of Education meeting that Shin had attended New Brunswick High School for several days before she was caught. Last week, by filing some false documents, an adult female posing as a student was able to be enrolled in her high school, Johnson said, according to video of the meeting shared on Twitter. During her days in school, Shin spent a lot of time with guidance counselors who were trying to find out more information about her. Ultimately, staff members at the school uncovered this woman's ruse and and enabled us to address this situation properly. Once our staff determined it was dealing with a fraudulent information, they immediately notified the appropriate authorities. The individual in question has now been charged and she has been barred from district property. Johnson said the school has warned students to refrain from having any further contact with the woman in person or remotely. He said the district will take a look at its enrollment processes to better identify false documentation. This is an unfortunate event. Communication has been provided to the parents of individuals that the young lady may have come into contact with, and communication has been provided to all high school parents today. 
Police say they are still investigating this, that according to New Jersey statute, schools are required to immediately enroll unaccompanied children, even in the absence of records normally required for enrollment. But a district can request such documents later to verify a student's age. The well-being of our students, staff, and community are of utmost importance to us, and we will continue working with the police department and other partners in addressing this matter. The Middlesex County Prosecutor's Office is not investigating the incident. It's not immediately clear whether Shin has a lawyer. I mean, number one, how do you not see a 29-year-old woman? It kind of reminds me of, I watched that Ginny and Georgia series on Netflix, which, ugh, awful, 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 awful. But um, I didn't see that. They're the students. It's a some. It's like a the the series, like a dramatic series on Netflix. There's two seasons of it out, but um, the students in it look so old to me. Especially one of them, he looks like 40 years old, and I'm like, this just kind of reminded me of that. How did they not see that this is a 29 year old woman? Oh. First of all, and second of all, what could be your motivation for wanting to go back to high school? High school sucked. Who would want to go back? Motivation, I like. I who knows, but. No one would look at me at 27 and be like, yeah, you can go back to high school. Never going to happen. No. That, I'm like, well, okay, I could maybe see, like, overlooking someone who could, you know, be on the fence age-wise. But, like, either she, I don't know. Well, the like, thing is, they I let can't... her immediately enroll, and then she provided her, her birth certificate later, and they found out that it was fraudulent. It's interesting that they are compelled to allow somebody immediately to enroll without a parent. Well, the only reason I think, like, well, okay, is because are there kids who, like, want to go to school, but either both parents work or don't have the means to, like, if they're, if English is a second language, you know what I mean? Then, you know, their parents are working and they can't get into the school. Like, part of me feels like, okay, I can kind of understand that a little bit. Just because um, schools, and it was highlighted during COVID, you know, when people were fed by the schools, like some kids, that's their like warm meal. Like that's the yeah. food that they're going to get is the food that they're getting at school. So that could be like a way to help protect kids. But I don't know. I don't anyway. know. Her motivation is what I want to know. Like why? Right. Is it for the food? Is it because you want to relive your high school glory? Is it because you want to molest children? Like what? what is the motivation there? Yeah, it's either danger to kids or, like, was she going to write an amazing book? Like, The funny part is I used to have dreams all the time about going back to high school now. Yeah. And then, you know, I'd wake up and I'd be like, what a crazy dream. Who does that? <laughs> she did. This girl did. <laughs> Unless she was just curious and was like, I'm not going to hurt anybody. I just want to see what it's like now. Like, I don't know. Although she's not that old. 29. 29. Yeah, high school is like 10 years ago. Unless she didn't go. Where's she from? It doesn't say. I don't know how to say it for like podcast reasons, but I'd be curious to see what would what would it be like to go back. But I don't think I'd actually try and get back. No. Yeah. Because it wouldn't be the same. Because it wouldn't be the same students. But was she just? I mean, maybe it would be fine for the show. But is she just curious? I don't know. It didn't, like, it didn't really get into her motivations, but I was kind of curious about the same things. Next article. <clears throat> Tyson Foods CFO pleads guilty to two charges after falling asleep inside a stranger's house. I don't know if you saw this. What? I talked about this on an earlier episode. Uh, I didn't get fully into the case, but evidently, hang on. 
An Arkansas woman found John Tyson, who she doesn't know, sleeping in her bed last November. She called police who said they could smell alcohol on him. So evidently, Tyson Foods chief financial officer, John R. Tyson, so evidently he's part of the Tyson family, has pled guilty to public intoxication and criminal trespassing levied against him. These charges were levied against him from a November arrest. As part of the guilty plea, he agreed to pay a total of $440 in fines and fees, according to the Wall Street Journal. He was arrested after he was found sleeping in a house that wasn't his own. I'm embarrassed and I want you to know that I take full responsibility for my action, he told investors and an analyst during a company earnings call after his arrest. This was an incident inconsistent with our company values as well as my personal values. A Fayetteville, Arkansas woman arrived home on November 6th and found Tyson, 32, asleep in her bed around 2 a.m., according to the arrest report shared by local news. The unidentified woman said she did not know Tyson and called the police to report an intruder. She reportedly told dispatchers that she may have left her front door unlocked and that this could have been how Tyson got inside of her home. The responding officer said that Tyson was most un- was mostly unresponsive at the scene and that he attempted to go back to sleep after the police started speaking with him. The officers also said they could smell alcohol on his breath and body. He was booked into Washington County Jail and released later the following day. John R. Tyson has worked for Tyson Foods since 2019 and still serves as the company's executive vice president and CFO. He's the son of the company chairman, John H. Tyson, and the great-grandson of the company's founder, John W. Tyson. Representatives for Tyson Foods did not respond to requests for comments on the story. I mean, number one, not to victim blame in any way, shape, or form, but who leaves their door unlocked as a single woman? Well, does it say at all, is it in his neighborhood? Uh, It doesn't say. Like, was his car parked out? I'm sure it doesn't say. Was the car parked out front? Like, no clue. situation? That's hysterical. Yeah. And, like, (laughs) who does that? I mean, this guy had to have been hammered oh i have a friend who um it was fourth of july and they woke up and there was someone in their house and he was like oh my gosh i was blackout drunk so i mean it could happen but what were you know what i mean was he far from home was there's got to be a good backstory <laughs> can you imagine saying it because of who he is but there's a good backstory i would have got a weapon i would have beat him <laughs> I mean, if he's sleeping, he's not going to attack you. I mean, that's just super creepy. But if that's not a lesson to keep your doors locked, I don't know what is. Right. And then second of all, like, is he was he reprimanded from Tyson at all? I mean, it sounds like a kind of quality leadership we need it as an executive in America today. Well, Sarcasm. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Gosh. next article. I don't know if you've heard about that, uh, the Baldwin, Alec Baldwin shooting. On the set of that movie. I guess there have been charges filed on that. It says, lights, camera, weapons check. Actors worry after Baldwin charges. The news that Alec Baldwin is now facing manslaughter charges for killing a cinematographer with a gun he'd been told was safe 
had actor Stephen Pascal thinking back to the filming of Aliens vs. Predators Requiem more than a decade ago when he and other actors were handling military-style rifles and told to start shooting. He felt safe and said because he relied on the professional props experts and the armorer who had checked them and shown him the gun. We are artists. We are not actual cowboys, actual cops, actual superheroes, Pascal said. We're not Jason Bourne. I can't even begin to imagine an actor having the responsibility of now needing to be the safety person on the set regarding prop guns. That's insane. The charges being brought against Baldwin for an on-set shooting had many actors recalling their own experiences with guns on set and discussing safety measures and who bears primary responsibility for them. Actor Michael Chiklis, who had been starring in television police dramas, including the commission The Shield, called the shooting a tragic accident and said that moving forward, there's absolutely no reason to use a real firearm on set ever again. The case in which prosecutors in New Mexico maintained that Baldwin bore responsibility for ensuring that the gun he was handed on the set of Rust was safe has prompted a debate within the film industry over gun safety and protocols. SAG-AFTRA, a union representing film workers, said the responsibility lay not with the actors, but with trained professionals. Actors and armorers describe varying experiences with guns on set, and with some actors exercising a higher level of caution than others, Baldwin faces two charges of involuntary manslaughter in the shooting death of cinematographer Helena Hutchkins, who was killed, that's a tongue twister, Helena Hutchkins, who was killed October 21st, 2021, when the revolver he was rehearsing with, which he had been told was cold, meaning it should never have contained any live ammunition, suddenly fired. The district attorney for Santa Fe County, Mary Carmack Atwees, said in an interview Thursday she planned to argue in court that Baldwin did not take due caution or circumspection when he drew an old-fashioned revolver from its holster, that he should have ensured the gun did not contain live rounds, and that he should not have pointed the weapon at the cinematographer. She said forensic evidence showed that Baldwin had pulled the trigger. Baldwin has denied that, saying the gun discharged unexpectedly after he pulled the hammer back and let it go. As the case moves forward, the norms and practices in the film industry and television industry will likely take center stage. Industry standards say that no one should be issued a firearm without it being trained in safety and that the responsibility for checking guns before each use lies with the prop master or designated weapons handler. Kirk Ace Vito, an actor who has worked extensively with weapons on shows such as Band of Brothers and the film The Thin Red Line, said it was typical for a film's armorer who was responsible for guns and ammunition on set to open a gun and demonstrate to the actor that it is empty. Ace Vito said that while he owned guns and had experience with them, many actors lacked the experience to check firearms on their own. In some cases, he noted the actors are children. It's not me, he said, referring to who has a responsibility. It can't be me. If you have never fired a weapon before, how would you know how to do all of that. For some people, it's hard to even pull back the slide. The armor on rust, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, is also facing charges of involuntary manslaughter. One of her lawyers, Jason Bowles, said she would be exonerated. Baldwin has asserted in interviews and court filings that that expecting an actor to take initiative to check a gun is not standard practice. His lawyer, Luke Nikas, said he would also be exonerated, calling the prosecution a terrible miscarriage of justice. SAG after said in a statement that industry guidelines do not make it the performer's responsibility to check firearms. Approaches to firearm safety vary on sets. Ruben Santiago Hudson, who played a New York police captain in the ABC drama Castle, 
and now plays an officer in the CBS drama East New York, said he had set strict rules for himself since appearing in a play where a blank was fired so close to another actor at a rehearsal that it nearly damaged the actor's eardrum. It's okay to annoy people by how much you check and recheck the gun, Santiago Hudson said. He said he has made sure to never point a gun directly at another person, a point of contention in the Rust case. Baldwin told ABC News after the shooting he had pointed the gun toward Touchkins only because he had been told it was cold and he was being directed to do so. I got countless people online saying, you idiot, you never point a gun at someone, Baldwin said in the interview. Well, unless you're told it's empty and it's the director of photography who's instructing you on the angle for the shot we were going to do. Days after the shooting, which also wounded the director of Rust, Joel Souza, investigators interviewed one of the movie's actors, Jensen Ackles, who told them he does inspect the guns himself on set. I just always do my own personal checks because it's a smart thing to do, he told police, according to the footage of the interview. But he noted that he did not expect his peers to do the same, telling the detectives that if actors were the final line of defense in the safety of a movie set, he wouldn't trust 99% of the people I work with. Others said they did not expect Baldwin to personally check every round that was loaded into the gun, but they would expect him to make sure someone had checked them. It was Dave Halls, the movie's first assistant director, who had proclaimed the gun cold that day, according to court papers. Speaking to investigators, Hall said that Gutierrez-Reed had opened the gun that day for him, but that he did not inspect each round individually. Hall says agreed to a plea deal on a charge of negligent use of a deadly weapon. Gutierrez-Reed told investigators she did check each of the six cartridges in the gun, but remarked at one point, I wish I would have checked it more. Legal experts say successfully prosecuting the charges against Baldwin would require the district attorney to demonstrate that he behaved negligently. Criminal law professors and former prosecutors said they would see an argument being made that Baldwin might have failed to act in a manner to protect others. One challenge for prosecutors will be that Baldwin was told the gun did not contain live ammunition. Lawyers who represent the production company behind the movie The Crow after actor Brandon Lee was fatally shot on set, said Baldwin's mindset at the time that he took the gun from Halls would probably be crucial for a jury and a judge. If a person's going to be negligent, you have to prove that they knew something and they proceeded anyway. They knew that the speed limit was 70 miles per hour and they went 100. Prosecutors did not file criminal charges after Lee, the son of a martial arts star, Bruce Lee, was shot with a gun that was supposed to fire only blanks. The Rust case has already started to reshape the film industry. Dwayne Johnson, an action star whose production company has made gun-filled films like Fast and Furious and Hobbs and Shaw, has said the company would no longer use real guns on set, but some are skeptical that one case has the power to change the industry significantly. Victor Talmadge, director of the Theater Studies program at Mills College at Northeastern University and an actor who has worked with guns on set, said that future films might make greater use of special effects or require more training with guns for actors, but he did not think real guns would disappear from the film business. The idea of a gun-toting character, the mythic model of an American culture, I don't know if that goes away as a symbol image on the screen. Ugh. I think this one's going to be hard to prosecute. Um, number one, he was told that the gun only contained blanks. Number two, it's going to be really, really hard to, to say that he was negligent in this case. I think it's a tragic accident. And I think that, you know, the armor should be held responsible for not properly checking those weapons. But to expect the actor to be fully aware and know all that is kind of ridiculous. But number one, on the other hand, common sense dictates you should not be pointing any kind of gun at anyone ever. And, and I grew up with guns and we were taught that, but that does not necessarily mean that the average person would know that.
But if he's in a movie, they point guns at people at, in movies. And that's what he's like, saying, that he was directed to do that because they were checking out the angle for the shot. Then you can't say, oh, well, he shouldn't have pointed it at him. Well, of course not. But you're making a movie. How many movies have you seen where people point guns at someone else? Yeah. A lot. Yeah. And... <laughs> I, mean, I don't think I don't think they're going to be able to, to. They're not going to be able to prosecute him. I mean, they're he's going to be exonerated on this. I I think there's no way. But why was there live ammunition in the set at all whatsoever? I don't know. I and that's know. I think kind of the the thing that happened with the Brandon Lee case, the the other gentleman who died in that movie, The Crow. Mm-hmm. It's just like you know, you have to check and recheck and double check. That's why you have armorers on set. That's why you have experts to check and recheck. And not doing that is negligent. Not necessarily the actor being negligent. It's whoever's responsible for keeping the weapons and checking the weapons is the negligent party if they don't discover a live round in a in a gun that's being used on set. Well, you would think that. I mean, I don't know anything about bullets, but if you buy a box of blanks that they're all blank. Like, could you go back as far as that for like quality control? I mean, no one's ever, they're not going to pin fault on anyone in this situation, but like, where is the, where is the fall through? You know what I mean? Like, why was there a live blank at all? Like a live, sorry, not live blank, but a live round on set at all whatsoever. Well, if it's a real weapon, it probably came from somebody's collection and they probably just didn't take it out like they should have. But that's not Alec Baldwin's responsibility. He's not an expert in guns. He shouldn't be required to be an expert in guns. And if that's the case that he should have been required to be an expert, then they should have given him more training on set. Yeah, that's not... That's not a thing. Yeah, no. That's (laughs) like, who's bringing these things onto set and why aren't they checked beforehand? As someone that's handled weapons and, and, and grown up around guns and things of that nature, uh, number one, he shouldn't have been pointing him at somebody. But if he's directed to do so, and that's the responsibility of the armor on set to check those weapons, then he cannot be held responsible. No. So you know, if you've got differing opinions and you want to tell us about it, shoot us an email. We're happy to kind of read that on the air and, and give us your opinion on that. But I, I think that... Alec Baldwin is ultimately going to be exonerated in this case. Yeah. And that's terrible. Could you imagine doing that? Not without the intent you're directed to do that. You do that. And somebody dies. That's terrible. He's never going to be the same again. It's a terrible, terrible accident is what it is. It's not a crime. I mean, maybe negligent action from the person, the armor that should have been taking care of those guns, but not the actor. No. So anyway, um, next case. Virginia family sent to prison after forcing Pakistan woman into modern day equivalent of slavery. The three Virginia family members were sentenced last week for for compelling another family member to what one prosecutor described as modern day equivalent of slavery for over a decade. This woman, Zahida Aman, 80, and her two sons, Mohammed Newman Chaudhry, 54, and Mohammed Rihan Chaudhry, 48, were convicted in May of conspiracy to commit forced labor. The court has also ordered the family to pay the victim $250,000 in restitution for back wages and other financial losses she incurred during her 12 years in forced labor. Prosecutors say Aman arranged for one of her son's marriage to the victim in 2002. The family then kept the woman in their Virginia home to serve the 
extended family even after the victim's husband moved out. Prosecutors say the family callously exploited the victim's vulnerabilities and brutally coerced her labor through physical violence and emotional abuse. The family compelled the woman to serve them as a domestic servant by using physical and verbal abuse, restricting her communication with her family in Pakistan, according to the evidence presented in court. The family also confiscated her immigration documentation, money, and threatened to separate her from her children by deporting her to Pakistan, the evidence says. On at least one occasion, the family hogtied the woman's hands and feet and dragged her down the stairs in front of her children. The woman was reportedly forced to work every day beginning early each morning. Her food was restricted and she was forbidden to learn to drive from speaking with anyone but family members and could not call her family in Pakistan. At their conviction in May 2022, U.S. Attorney Jessica D. Alber from the Eastern District of Virginia likened the woman's forced labor situation to the modern-day equivalent of slavery. The defendants exploited somebody who should have been a loved family member to force her to work in their home for more than a decade. We will stop at nothing to prosecute those that commit these or similar crimes. Can you imagine? Oh, those people should get the fullest extent of punishment like of the law that is horrible that poor woman 12 years of that she and she's have, not from this country she and must i have can't been so hopeless stand, like the safest place no and you're gonna exploit that yeah just terrific and the thing is the husband moved out and they still kept her on to, to work for them her her husband i thought it, the man I, she was brought there to marry left and left her there with her kids to keep working. But it was his family who did it, right? Yes. Yeah. And no, he didn't stick up for her. Fall. I mean, can you imagine? That's awful. This poor Unless woman. They, like, manipulated him in such a way that made it so that he felt like he had to leave. You never know that situation, but. Yeah. So, that's awful. Yeah. Terrible, terrible case. Um, I hope she does get that money and it's not just a symbolic gesture. She should get more than $250,000. For that long. Yeah, I agree. And the torture and all that. Who are these people? Can't She needs a better lawyer to sue their pants off and then send them to jail for well, a Well, they might not have the money to be able to afford that. I mean, who knows? I know, but if this is such a public case, somebody better pony up and get her something amazing. That's terrible. Yeah. Okay. And final case for the day, men imprisoned for murder say police illegally used Google to find their location data. Two men imprisoned for killing a California gas station manager are trying to get their cases overturned by arguing that Los Angeles County investigators broke the law when they had Google scour location data for millions of devices in search of potential suspects. The appeal is part of a growing attempt by defense lawyers and privacy advocates to curtail police use of geofence warrants, an investigative tool powered by the public's reliance on phones that track their movements. Driving the resistance is concerned that the warrants give police too much discretion in deciding where to search and whose movements seem suspicious. Opponents say the warrants violate the U.S. Constitution's protections against unreasonable searches by combing through the location data of innocent Google users in search of possible suspects. Opponents say the warrants violate the U.S. Constitution's protections against unreasonable searches by combing through the location data of innocent Google users in search of possible suspects. They also point to cases in which geofence warrants led police to the wrong people, a bicyclist swept into a burglary investigation, a warehouse worker mistakenly charged with murder, and others. It's really unlimited in how they can be used, and that's what 
we are concerned about, said Jennifer Lynch, the surveillance litigation director at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a nonprofit digital rights group that filed a brief Tuesday supporting the appeal of the two men in the killing of the Los Angeles gas station manager. Geofence warrants, which compel Google to provide a list of devices whose location histories indicate they were near a crime scene, are used thousands of times a year by American law enforcement agencies, helping them solve murders, arsons, burglaries, sexual assaults, home invasions, and many other crimes, including the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. The warrants are typically sealed by a judge until a suspect has been arrested. Police and prosecutors say geofence warrants are, are legal because they are signed by judges or magistrates and are limited to circumstances when investigators have strong reason to believe they will find the culprits. The California challenge filed with the state's second district court of appeals in Los Angeles involved the March 1st, 2019 shooting death of Abdallah Tabet, 38, who managed gas stations owned by his uncle, according to court documents. After he collected money from the businesses, Tibet drove to a Bank of America branch in the city of Paramount. Two cars pulled up behind him. The driver of one shot him, and the driver of the other took his backpack full of cash. Security video showed the two suspect cars had been in locations where Tibet had collected money, according to court documents. Unable to identify the drivers, Los Angeles County Sheriff's investigators asked a judge to force Google to provide a list of devices that had been in the area of the bank in five locations this man had visited before he was killed. That required Google to search its database of all devices running apps or software that collected location data. The list of devices was so large that investigators asked Google to winnow it down to devices that had been two or more of the locations. Google provided eight such devices. Two had been at four of the locations. From there, investigators identified Daniel Meza and Walter Menzies, whom they charged with the fatal attack. The men's defense lawyers asked a judge to rule the geofence warrant unconstitutional and throw out any evidence that came from it. The judge declined. Meza pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Menzes pleaded no contest and was sentenced to 15 years to life. Both men were allowed under state law to appeal the judge's ruling on the geoface warrant. In September, they both did. The appeal accuses investigators of violating not only the, the Constitution's Fourth Amendment, but also California's Electronic Communications Privacy Act. The men's lawyers argued the geofence warrant invaded the privacy of everyone whose data was collected, including the defendants, with a search that did not have anyone specific in mind. In all likelihood, most people have no idea such a detailed history of their comings and goings can be retrieved and examined by law enforcement without their ever knowing. A lawyer for the state's attorney general's office countered in response, here law enforcement did not stop and seize random members of the public as a matter of course looking for some potential unknown crime. Rather, a search warrant was issued based upon probable cause to help identify two suspects who had already committed a known crime. Fleming and other lawyers representing the men declined to speak about the case. The attorney general's office also declined to comment. Google did not immediately respond to a two requests for comment either. Neither did the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Lynch of the Electronic Frontier Foundation said the appeal reflects wider concerns about police investigative powers. Geofence warrants sweep in everyone who may have been at a given location at a given time period and leave it up to police to decide whether to target for further investigation. Lynch noted that law enforcement agencies could use geofence warrants to monitor people involved in protests. The U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosive reportedly used geofence warrants to investigate riots and arsons after the 2020 killing of Jacob Blake in 
Wisconsin. After the May 2020 police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, police investigating vandalism reportedly obtained a geofence warrant that scooped up data about people who gathered in the area, including some who went on to protest. If police can use these kinds of warrants whenever they want, they will be used to target people for First Amendment protected speech, to target people for their reproductive choices, to target people who go to gun shows. A backlash has slowly gained traction in U.S. courts. Last March, a federal judge in Virginia ruled that a geofence warrant used to find a suspect in a bank robbery was unconstitutional. In September, a state court in San Francisco ruled against the use of geofence warrant in a burglary investigation. Brian Osley, a former federal magistrate who teaches the Fourth Amendment in the University of North Texas at Dallas College of Law, said geofence warrants are flawed because they do not specifically say who they are targeting. But because police are already seeking them so frequently, it will be difficult to curb their use. The growing legal challenges could lead to a patchwork of decisions that might restrict law enforcement in some states or jurisdictions, but not others. Law enforcement agencies may then try to work around these, like teaming up with agencies and jurisdictions that lack restrictions. This is a tool that law enforcement is hellbent on using, and I understand why. But at the end of the day, there's a tension there, and I'm, and I'm not sure how to overcome that. What do you think? Should they be allowed to use that data? Initially, I was like, well, yeah, go for it. Just don't break the law, you stupid dummies. But when you started talking about, like, people in protest and people, you know. It's a slippery um, slope. Once you allow them to use that data, unless you narrowly construe how they can use it, they can use it for anything. Right. You would have, I mean, in this case specifically, I feel like, well, yeah, you killed someone. Let them use your data. Like, duh, don't kill people and don't steal their stuff. But So you think it should be narrowly construed only in murder cases? I mean, if that's your missing link, then use it. But like you're saying, it is a slippery slope because you use it for one. You know, then then where, where do you draw the line? Yeah. But if you're choosing to carry a cell phone... You know what I mean? That's maybe not everyone knows these types of things, but if you like are carrying a cell phone and you know, okay, well, people can track me. Yeah. That's your, that's your choice. Turn off your phone, dummy. (laughs) Right. I mean, and then you're, you're, you are making that decision. Yeah. Well, do you think that those men's convictions should be overturned because they use the geo data collection? But they did. So, but they did kill someone for sure. <clears throat> correct. There's, that's not the only piece of evidence that they have. Like there's other evidence. Yes. That they killed. Correct. Oh, but it's that's- called, it's called, it's a concept that's called the fruit of the poison tree. So if one little part of that tree is poisoned, you have to throw the whole tree out. Oh, I think if you killed somebody, you can't throw the whole tree out. You've done something terrible. You took someone's life. No. I don't know. On the one hand, I, can understand the people that are arguing against the the ability to use this in that the police should be able to do their job and collect that evidence in other ways. They should not be dependent on that. But on the other hand, if it is one small piece that is going to put the nail in the coffin and get them a conviction and they have a bunch of other stuff, they should be allowed to use it. If it's the only thing they have, they shouldn't be allowed to use it. And I think it should only be allowed to be used in certain circumstances. But how do you limit that? That's the question. Yeah. I don't know. That's tricky. I get it. I mean, I get the constitutional arguments, but like, I don't personally, I think that they should be able to use it if that's the last piece that they're missing to allow them to get a conviction for a felony 
for a murder case. Right. Well, and I, I, I feel like murder case specifically this it's, if you didn't steal money from somebody like this is, this it's is a lot big. more. Yeah. I feel yeah. like it's a lot more serious. Yeah. Okay. Um, we are going to wrap the episode up for the day. I want to give a special thank you to nurse Sam for jumping in and helping us out on the episode. Thank you so much, Sam. It's been a pleasure <laughs> chatting <fun>. with you. <laughs> it was fun. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It was fun to, fun to weigh in. Awesome. Okay. So all of the articles that we used on the show today will be posted in the show notes. If you want to go check those out and please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky and wild cases. Good night podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real and always live your very best life. Bye.